Welcome to Prang and Company's Weekly Furniture Digest, the show that was but won't be again, unless it will be, at which point it wasn't. Last week, we covered in depth the topic of manatees, in particular, how much an adult manatee tends to weigh. And for this, I must issue a heartfelt apology. It turns out that despite their ornate and dainty appearance, manatees are not in fact classified as furniture, let alone as antiques, let alone as Edwardian antiques. And this prompted many of our subscribers to ask what it was that we were in fact going on about. It's clear to us now that on last week's episode, we did not meet the Prang and Company Guarantee of Excellence. And for that, we are truly, truly sorry in the sort of way that people who are actually not sorry at all tend to be sorry, which is to say, pleased. And with that out of the way, it's time for our newest feature, Manatee Fact Hour. Manatees subsist on algae, mangrove leaves and seagrass and eat 10% of their body weight each day. They grow new teeth throughout their lives, with their older teeth falling out and being replaced by new teeth that grow further back in their mouths. They have six neck vertebrae, which is unusual for mammals, and they share that characteristic with the tree sloth. Manatees are mostly made of mahogany, oak, pinewood, and walnut, and feature large panel doors with metal-accented handles that may or may not feature a rudimentary locking mechanism. Many of the more expensive manatees were crafted by the renowned British wardrobe makers Gillows of Lancaster in London, which is mentioned in the work of Jane Austen, William Makepeace Thackeray, and Gilbert and Sullivan, and whose trademark features were the thin-moulded cornice, pairs of carved corbels, and the inverted breakfront plinth. This particular piece dates from the late 18th century, has a full complement of shelves, has been fully waxed, and comes with a 28-day money-back guarantee. When considering a gillows, it's important to distinguish between eras. In 1903, nearly two centuries after Robert Gillow founded his original company, gillows merged with Warings of Liverpool to become Waring and Gillow. While it can sometimes be difficult to discern, you can usually detect a Waring and Gillow piece from the thin brass plaque affixed to the back. If you... And this is where the podcast gets rather meta, because my sponsor this week is Kevin Williamson's podcast at CEI, How the World Works. And my podcast guest this week is also Kevin Williamson. In a sense, it's a Kevin Williamson double feature, the first part of which is this commercial break. Our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute are back with new episodes of their Breakout How the World Works podcast, hosted by author and political commentator Kevin Williamson. If you're not already listening to the show, you should be. For each episode, Kevin sits down with notable guests for candid conversations about the jobs they've had and the role of work in the economy and our social lives. From flipping burgers 
tending pigs on a farm to leading special ops missions in far corners of the globe, some of America's best thinkers discuss the jobs they've had that inform their outlook on life and future careers. In a recent episode, Kevin sat down with Jonah Goldberg, their old friends, their colleagues of National Review, and it was a fascinating conversation about the ins and outs of Jonah's decades-long career in the media. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts, or to visit cei.org forward slash how the world works. That's cei.org forward slash how the world works. But before you do that, here is Kevin Williamson himself. Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen and Manatees and Sloths. Welcome to, hey, wait a minute, this isn't Mad Dogs and Englishmen, this is Charlie Cook's podcast, but it's sort of like Mad Dogs and Englishmen because I'm Kevin Williamson and I'm having a conversation with Charlie today. And in the tradition of our former Mad Dogs and Englishmen podcast, which is not a bar that we jointly own in Florida, um, we're doing this with no planning or preparation or even an idea of what we're going to talk about today. But hey, Charles, what's going on? You know, I just read an ad for your podcast. I know. I was actually listening to the editors, and you had a sharp disagreement with your uh, colleagues over this internet regulation stuff. And I thought we might talk about some of the social media regulation things. I think you and I probably tend to agree on that. But um, I wanted to ask you about it because you have two kids who are older than mine. So for us right now, it's easy just to say, you know, you don't get a phone or an internet or any screens or anything like that because we've got a, you know, a 19 month old boy. And then we've got, you may have heard about this, but we've got three little ones who are about 12 days old, something like that now, something like that. So it's an expanding family, but is it harder to tell them they can't have a phone or screens or tablets or whatnot as they get older? I assume it is. It hasn't been too difficult thus far. I now, yours are still pretty young, right? You're like six, seven, and seven. five, yeah. six and seven. So it's, can I have a phone? No. All right. Can I have a snack? (laughs) And I'm pretty tech savvy, as you know. So the house is locked down. We do have a family computer. They have accounts on it, but they can't do anything in those accounts that isn't sanctioned. They're monitored. They both have iPads, but again, they're completely locked down. They can't even install an app without requesting permission and they can't send emails without asking either and their email contact list is limited to those contacts that i've put in so their grandparents their aunts and uncles yeah i've always thought that even for for older kids that probably the best approach is is transparency if they know that you can see everything they're doing online that should put some pressure on them to uh, behave themselves. But am I, am, I, am I engaged in wishful thinking about that? Well, I think you're correct. The challenge is, and this is where I do understand the impetus that has led to politicians trying to come up with a legislative solution to this, a legislative solution that I oppose, where I understand the impetus is that that's all well and good inside the house. But the moment somebody leaves the house, then not only does it make it more difficult to control their network access, because suddenly they're on the cellular network, although there are ways of doing that, but they're exposed to their friends. I mean, maybe they're on a school bus, 
and they're 13 years old and 25 people have smartphones, the likelihood at that point that every single one of those smartphones will be properly monitored or locked down is approaching nil. And that's where the issue comes in, I think. Yeah, I can remember the way various kinds of um, contraband got handed around when I was a little kid. And you have to imagine that um, maybe the you know phones will essentially work the same way. You know, I haven't thought too much about what to do once they're you know out of the house, but um, we're weirdos, I suppose, in the sense that um, you know, we were perfectly willing just to get rid of the television. Fine. If we're concerned about what the kids are going to see on TV and how to con- control it and all that, well, you don't have to have one. And I'm perfectly willing to uh, inconvenience my my kids by not letting them have phones and and that kind of stuff. Although, again, I'm talking a good game at an age when it's easy to um, to do that. I think that what's going on here, and you, you maybe alluded to this a little bit in your conversation on the editors, is that you have a lot of parents who don't seem to me to be willing to annoy their kids or disappoint their kids by saying, you can't do this. And especially when the kids have peers whose parents are not making similar limitations on them. And so they're asking the government to step in and solve essentially a collective action problem for them, saying, Rather than get the parents all on the same page of just passing a rule that gets them there, so you don't have to be the one. So you're not the one belling the cat. You know, you're the one out there saying, Well, I know everyone else is doing this, but you can't because it's not good for you. It's easier to do that, I suppose, if there's just a rule that says everybody has to do it. Right. And I think that's exactly my position is that this is ultimately a problem that is the product of technological change, not of Mark Zuckerberg's greed but of technological change that Mark Zuckerberg had a role in fostering but cannot control. Yeah. And that it is ultimately the responsibility of parents to deal with it. And that if we don't accept that and instead look to Congress, we are going to create a version of the internet that I believe we will come to regret. And I say we, meaning America... But I also say we meaning conservatives. It is not lost on me that many of the people who are leading the charge for these sorts of changes are usually leading the charge against these sorts of changes. I have seen Josh Hawley inquire of our tech magnates why they are not using their powers to track and superintend the behavior of users more and seeing Josh Hawley ask of our tech magnates why they are using their power and technology to superintend the behavior of their users. And this has happened within two or three years. And and without any loss of enthusiasm, we have now gone (laughs) from you should not be filtering for content to why don't you have more people filtering for content? And even if you think that there is a material difference, and I do, between people at Twitter blocking certain political views and people at Facebook searching for bullying, once you have put these systems in place, especially if you do it using the power of the federal government, they will start to be hijacked by the very people we are told control our lives. And I don't know how people can't see this. How difficult could it be to imagine 
a circumstance in which the federal government says that it is the responsibility, the legal responsibility of a Facebook or a Twitter to ensure that young people are not exposed to bullying, anything that might diminish their self-esteem, misinformation, and so on. How difficult is it to imagine that being applied to, for example, any website that ever carries criticism of transgenderism? It, it seems obvious to me. Or just criticism of political candidates right. or other things that they don't want to read. I mean, it's easy to uh, to generalize this stuff. Yeah, you know, part of the conversation, of course, has to do with anonymity and the you know, general impossibility of imposing real, meaningful, toothy age restrictions while not not violating anonymity. And it's funny, I'm, I'm sort of a two minds about that because, um, you know, we live, of course, in the privileged part of the world where we are relatively safe and happy and prosperous. And I tend to think that anonymity brings out really, really bad things in people. I think it's actually one of the worst aspects of the internet. It's why every comment section is such a sewer. It's one of the reasons why social media in general is such a sewer. But there are places in the world and contexts in the United States and the, and the rest of the developed world where anonymity is important and desirable and, and valuable. And I don't think that um, there's a good way around that particular problem. Either you're going to have a system that doesn't really verify age, or you're going to have a system that has a very strong bias against anonymity or that really effectively makes anonymity impossible because if you're going to really enforce age restrictions, you basically have to uh, be doing something adjacent to government-issued IDs. And it will change the way the internet works, even if you could find a way around that, which I don't think you can. I think you're right. But suppose there was some really sophisticated way of creating a token that could be used around the internet. Mm -hmm. So there's some third-party private entity that is trusted. You verify with them, and then you create this token, and you use it. And that doesn't prove too complex for the average person to use, which I don't believe for a single second. I am tech support for a huge number of people <laughs> informally. I simply don't believe that that is possible without creating all sorts of barriers to entry. But just assume for the sake of argument that it is, that this is perfected. The internet would change. That open idea that the United States championed, didn't invent all of it. Tim Berners-Lee helped invent the web, some of the protocols that are used for the transmission of information. But the idea came from America. It is inextricably linked to the First Amendment. The people who led that charge were First Amendment absolutists who hated censorship and interpreted even roadblocks as censorship. That internet would go away forever. Yeah, that kind of pamphleteering spirit, I think, is, uh, is a big, big part of what made the internet the useful and, and often wonderful thing it was in the 90s and maybe even into the early 20, 21st century uh, before it became what it is now. Agreed. Would you like to hear a funny age verification story? I do. So uh, many, many years ago when I was in college, this would have been probably 1995, I would guess, maybe 1996. I had a friend who owned a small town newspaper and I would sometimes help him with some stuff. And I'd also babysit his uh, 
kids for him sometimes when they were um, when he was out, you know, finishing up the uh, late night newspaper stuff. And he had a kid who was probably oh, I would guess he was around eleven, something like that. And it was a pretty good kid. Anyway, so I'm in, you know, watching television. He's in playing on his computer, and I hear from the other room, Kevin, who was G. Gordon Liddy? <laughs> and I say to myself. This cannot be good <laughs> when a kid that age is asking you who Gordon Liddy is. Um, he's up to something, up to something wrong. And you may be too young to remember this, but there used to be a computer game called Leisure Suit Larry, mm-hmm. which was sort of a sex-themed game, I guess. Um, I don't really think I ever played it, but if I recall, it was like, you know, he would be in certain social situations and like trying to pick up girls, essentially. But there was some fairly, I guess, explicit sexual element to it. And the way they kept kids from playing it, or they thought they would keep kids from playing it, was by they asked them a few trivia questions when the game began, and things that you know only people over eighteen probably would know. And back then, one of the questions was, you know, who was G. Gordon Liddy? So I went and asked him about this. And I said, does your, does your father know that you play this game? He's like, Yeah, he's, that's fine. I have his permission. I'm going to call him and check just to be sure. No, 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 no. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. <laughs> and uh, so I told him all about G. Gordon Liddy, but uh, I did not let him play Leisure Suit Larry. I need to look this game up now, not because I enjoy that sort of game, but it is clearly in that strange group of games that have disappeared now that were the brainchild of eccentric programmers, had no obvious commercial application and yet became cult anyway there's a netflix documentary about the history of video games that i saw recently and it focused in on some of these games that were written by one guy in a basement some of them became very rich some of them really did not but that sort of disappeared in the age of the ti-99 which was the computer you had if you were a pretty cool guy um i didn't have one obviously Back in the uh, kind of middle 80s, I guess, the um, you know pre-web world of networked computers where there were, I guess there were the listserv sites already at yeah. that point. And, uh, and you could do email, although there weren't very many people to send it to, obviously. Uh, but there was a game that was very popular called Hump the Wumpus. <laughs> and I guess it was sort of like Battleship, actually, where you're trying to identify where in a grid this monster you're hunting is. And you get so many, you know, chances before he gets you instead. But uh, I had a couple of friends who were just absolutely addicted to uh, Hunt the Wumpus. So this is a radical change in topic, but I have to ask you this. Yeah. You and I both being small L liberals, at least in the constitutional realm. How worried are you about crime? And how much has it made you reconsider your political priors or at least shift your emphases in terms of public policy yes well as a former habitual criminal i uh, well no wait a minute um i've probably been arrested more times than your average national review person or your average dispatch person i bet andy mccarthy's been arrested a couple of times andy's got a real drunken disorderly vibe about him from uh, time to time I mean, when he was young, you can imagine like young Andy McCarthy being a real, real hellraiser. You know, one of the future Leisure Suit Larry game is going to be what was the name of that famous libel case? <laughs> McCarthy versus Williamson. No, no. Let's see. Uh, how worried am I about crime? So fairly. So you know, for the last uh, five, six years or so, I've, I've mostly lived 
in Dallas. And Dallas is a pretty high crime city. I live in a pretty quiet, yuppie, Audi driving, whole food shopping type neighborhood, but it's adjacent to a fairly high crime area and uh, close enough that, you know, you hear gunfire and stuff from time to time. Hmm. Although I suspect that most of the gunfire we hear is, is celebratory. It tends to um, coincide with soccer matches. In terms of like being, you know, sort of victimized by violent crime or something like that, I don't worry tremendously about that. I mean, for someone who carries a gun, I guess, you know, I, I, I don't worry that much about it. But I guess the fact that I carry a gun suggests that I probably worry about it more than the average person does. I think a lot about things like vehicular robbery, which I've actually had happen to me before, uh, twice, although not recently and not here. So I think about, well, am I going to leave something like a gun in the car? I just, I just won't do that because there's enough, you know, car break-ins. Um, you know, having a gun stolen is a real pain in the ass. You know, if you want to be responsible about it and do the reporting that's necessary when you've got a, a firearm that's gone, gone missing that way. What affects me, I guess, more than anything else isn't the fear of being victimized by violent crime. It's just the disorderliness of our cities. The fact that it's every major intersection now is just covered up by beggars and vagrants of various kinds, that it's you know hard to fill up your car with gas without sort of you know running a, a gauntlet of panhandlers and such. Again, I don't worry about that for me so much. I worry about it maybe more so for my wife and for other people. We've definitely been on an unwelcome upswing for a few years. That may be temporary. I suspect some of it's related to COVID. I suspect some of it's not related to COVID. I think that part of the recent crime spike is probably um, tied up in the same social energies that have brought us the recent bouts of populism on both sides of the political spectrum. And I think there's probably dots you can connect going back to the, the financial crisis and the recession in the aftermath of that, that gave a lot of people a general sense of social brokenness and that the rules didn't apply. And so why bother? And there's a kind of nihilism afoot, I think, that maybe wasn't there before that. I worry about violence in the run-up to and the wake of the upcoming election. Certainly something I've thought about a great deal. I think there's just a 100% chance there's going to be political violence of one sort or another, irrespective of, of who wins. Biden wins, or it looks like Biden will win. There will be some right-wing political terrorism directed probably at polling sites or counting places or things like that. If it looks like Trump's likely to win or if he does win, there'll be, you know, kind of at least I would imagine George Floyd level of, of riots and, and public disorder. So that kind of stuff does, uh, does, does worry me some. We've recently been in the process of relocating and being out in the country in a small town in the mountains is a, is a little different. Although, you know, crime certainly reaches out there as well, too. If my living in New York in 2010 or 2011 was my baseline, if that's a one on my uh, scale, I'd say I'm at maybe a three and a half, something like that. So significantly more concerned about crime than I was. Partly that's a change in, in crime. Partly it's a change in my family status and all that, that I've got more people to worry about than I used to. Yeah, if I think about it, it's on my mind considerably more than it would have been 10 years ago. Yeah, me too. How about you? Well, the same, the same. But I've also come to recast myself in my mind's eye. I thought that I was a bit of a bleeding heart on this question. What I've realized is I'm actually a law and order guy, but I'm a stickler for procedure. Yeah. 
I believe to my core in following the rules. And if that means that guilty men walk so be it. Sure, of course. But I don't have a great deal in common with some of the people who agree with me on that. And I sense as crime gets worse and as it worries more people that those contradictions are being revealed. Normally, I would have conversations with other people who want to see the fourth, fifth, sixth amendments interpreted and upheld to the letter and we would agree on much of the other stuff as well i think that's easier to do when you're used to a period of relative peace yeah i don't know if you read my um if you read my monday morning uh, newsletter but i have a, a phrase that I, I use in it that's that's kind of been on my mind lately which i refer to as iron fist libertarianism which is kind of a joke. There aren't a lot of things that I want to be illegal, but the things that right. are illegal, we should probably um, get serious about dealing with. And I don't think that our general disinclination to criminalize things should be something that we generalize into a more indulgent attitude toward the things that really ought to be prohibited. Right. I'm not going to tell you that I think you know cocaine and prostitution and uh, pornography and all that stuff is good for people or good for society or good for families. I don't think that, obviously. I don't think that prohibiting it legally and treating it as criminal matter is in any of those cases really probably the best way to go about it. That being said, the things that really should be prohibited, and some of those are big things like, you know, murder and assault and sexual assault and hurting people in various ways. But also, you know, smaller things like vandalism, graffiti painting, that kind of stuff. I think we should take a much, much more serious attitude toward those things than we than we often do. You know, if you've been to California recently, and particularly in San Francisco, uh, deciding that we're not going to prosecute certain kinds of property crimes, you know, shoplifting and that sort of thing has really changed the, the character of that city in lots of ways and made it much more disorderly. Yes. And it was already a pretty disorderly city. Yeah, we should be selective about what we are interested in prohibiting, but that selectivity shouldn't lead us to excessive softness when it comes to things that necessarily are prohibited. I think the dividing line here is human nature. I believe in human nature. I think it's a constant. That's the great genius of the Constitution. Because of that, I really have very little time for these criminal justice reforms that assume that people who commit violent crimes are going to reform themselves. I also have very little time for those who trust the government. So you end up with this paradox in that <laughs> yes. I want people who commit violent crimes to be arrested, to be charged, and then if proven guilty, if the government can prevail with the odds stacked slightly in favor of the defendant, then I want to see long sentences because I don't think this is working. It's not working. It's crazy. The number of times I've read in the newspaper over the last couple of years that a person who did something heinous, again, we're not talking here about you know, marijuana possession or even tax fraud, though I oppose tax fraud, but violent crimes was let out having committed another violent crime or got a suspended sentence or you know, this is this is crazy to me. Yeah, we had one of those, you know, mass shooters I was writing about a few months ago who'd been involved in a bombing case. Um and they just dropped the charges. You know, that stuff's crazy. David French was mentioning this on a on a different podcast, um, maybe within the last couple of weeks. 
and it's an idea that I've I've come across in reading about criminal justice reform in various ways that I think is is maybe worth emphasizing that in terms of what seems to be most effective when it comes to deterrence is not necessarily the severity of the punishment, but the certainty of it. The idea being that um, if a crime carries you know one year in jail, but you're ninety percent likely to do the time if you do the crime versus a crime that carries ten years in jail, but most people who do it don't get convicted or ever charged, then the more effective deterrent tends to be the lesser punishment handed out with a greater degree of certainty. So a good example of this is DUI. We have gone through periods of taking a relatively liberal attitude toward drunk driving and relatively stringent attitudes toward drunk driving, but for various reasons, most of the people who drive drunk never get charged. And people who do get charged and get convicted, I remember one estimate the average person who gets charged with drunk driving gets charged on something like his 750th offense. Wow. Or something like that. So uh, people who drive drunk tend to hit When, when you drive. say offense, you mean the 750th time he did it, not got caught. Right. Not the 750th time he got pulled over. So no, I, and that's the thing. So once people actually get you know pulled over, we have a pretty robust system and you're, you're going to tend to get you know charged and um, in, in most cases convicted or you know plead it down to something else. There's going to be some you know criminal liability there. But it's just something you don't get caught for very often. And there are lots of crimes like that. And increasingly, we treat a lot of property crimes that way, of course, too, where even if just someone gets caught shoplifting in San Francisco or New York City or Chicago or Dallas or Houston, the chance of them actually being charged with something and experiencing some punishment, even if it's a pretty modest one, even if it's 48 hours in jail or uh, you know something like that, it's going to lose whatever kind of um, deterrent effect might have been expected. And that's the thing, because I think people respond to incentive. And I guess that's another way of squaring that circle, in that I think that people respond to incentives, and I also think that governments respond to incentives. I don't think every innovation of the Warren Court is to be found in the Constitution. And were those innovations to be overturned by the court, I would support it, because I think it's important to say what the law means, even if others have incorrectly determined what the law means in the past. But most of the policy prescriptions of the Warren Court in the realm of criminal justice, I like. I think it is good for the government to know that if it fabricates evidence or obtains evidence in a way that is illegal, that it might lose the entire trial as a result. I think that's a good thing because it creates an incentive structure to do things properly when you're dealing with matters of core human liberty. But equally, I find increasingly, again, some of the people who believe all of that stuff, as I do, to be living in la-la land when they describe how routine criminals think. And as you say, if you believe that there is pretty much a certainty that if you do something wrong, especially if it is obviously wrong, not malum prohibitum, but malum in se, that you will end up being punished for it, you are obviously going to change your behavior, right? And that's the bit that we're missing in so many jurisdictions and that worries me. Yeah, I think that um, for certain categories of crimes, I think that milder but more certain punishment would be um, preferable. And even if that means you know milder and more certain punishment that we um, arrange in such a way so as not to create a lifelong disability for someone. 
our record for rehabilitating serious felons isn't all that great, but there are people who commit felonies who get out of prison and really want to rebuild lives, and it can be very, very difficult for them in terms of getting jobs and that sort of thing. So to the extent that we can do what is possible to ease the way for people who really want a rehabilitated life, that's something that should be on our priority list as well. But um, it's not necessary, I think, for every crime to produce that kind of lifelong consequence in order to build some kind of model of effective deterrence. So I have another question for you, and it's one that I have been asked by people who ask me about Mad Dogs and Englishmen and ask how you are and do a little compare and contrast between my new podcast and my old podcast. Yeah. Why don't you like sports? I liked playing sports. You know, I played uh, football in high school. I was a pretty serious wrestler, undefeated city champion once upon a time. Nice. Yeah, I was, I was pretty good. Uh, wrestling was a sport I always really liked, and I got into it when I was very young. I started getting seriously into wrestling when I was probably around 10, I guess, 10 or 11, and did it competitively in junior high and high school. I wouldn't say that I don't like sports. I would say that sports rarely makes it high enough on my daily priority list to be a thing that gets my attention. So when I lived in New York, I would occasionally go to a Knicks game. And that's a lot of fun, especially if you've got good seats. I've gone to, I went to one NFL game some years ago in uh, Miami and tremendously fun. I really enjoyed it. Very fun stadium down there. And I've, I've been to a lot of boxing matches, uh, both kind of low-level professional boxing when I lived in Philadelphia, and then higher-level professional boxing when I was in New York, and, um, and particularly in Las Vegas. I don't watch any television that puts me on someone else's schedule almost ever, which is to say that you know live events and things like that just aren't something that I, that I do. Yeah, well, that rules out a lot of sports. Yeah, I mean, it's just it, I, I, don't, I don't sit down and you know watch football games with people. But do you do you think you have that general sports gene? I ask this because my running joke—I've made this over and over on this podcast. So apologies to those who have heard this before. But my running joke is that I'm a sports guy to the extent that if I sit in a bar and someone says we're going to do snail racing. I would get into it quite quickly. I might even place bets on it. I'd have a favorite snail. And I don't sense that in you. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, think, I, I don't think I have that gene. I, um, that kind of, um, yeah. that joining spirit is, is something that I just don't have a lot of. I am not much of a joiner. It is true. Yeah, I've, I've, you know, I'm, I'm not a member of a lot of clubs or associations or things like that. Well, I'm not either. This is the one thing I have. But All right, I mean, some people have that, you know. Um, that kind of, uh, even when I was playing sports, that kind of thing just never really hooked me. I was speaking of, of hooking them. So when I was in college, I went to the University of Texas. And for a certain kind of UT student, although I don't think the majority of UT students, certainly when I was there, sports and sports rivalries are a real big thing. And I just never could really particularly get into it. My brother and some of my other family went to uh, A&M, where sports rivalries, particularly with UT, are a uh, are a very big part of their kind of, you know, identity as, as people who went to school there. I think maybe this goes back at least to high school for me because I went to nerd school in Texas. You know, I went to a school that had, we, we had literally the worst 5A football team in Texas history <laughs> that's, at that that's point. That's doing something. <laughs> yeah. 
I was playing for this school that had, we had a really good chess club, you know, and, um, and a pretty good like, women's gymnastics team. And we were, I think my junior or senior year, maybe both, we were the UIL, you know, national math and science champions, that kind of stuff. So you can imagine this school was not a huge football playing school and it wasn't, but I did play in the league in the year that the famous book Friday Night Lights was written about. Oh, wow. So we had to play that team. And those guys were, now I didn't play in that particular game. Those guys were, were real serious about football. When I did play another game against, um, was that Permian, right? It was Odessa Permian. And I want to say they beat us 88 to nothing or something like that. Some kind of horrible, horrible score. And uh, we were everyone's homecoming game because everyone wants to win their homecoming game. So they knew they would beat us. So when I see a mum, I still kind of get like post-concussion uh, problems. So yeah, maybe it was just going to nerd school that uh, that um, I missed the opportunity to um, to sign up for that uh, kind of feeling. So we had a whole like um, complicated set of school cheers that were about how bad our team was and uh, that stuff. And there is it was pretty funny actually. I remember um, I didn't play my uh, my senior year, and I went and saw our coach, Coach Loudermilk. He was a pretty good guy, and I told him I'm not going to play football next year, and he was just shocked. Because you know I was I was a pretty good football player. I mean by the by local standards, and uh, certainly for, by the standards of our school, I was a starting football player. Why anyone you know any young man in West Texas would give up a spot on a on a on a football team in five A football? And what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to spend more time you know working on the school newspaper. <laughs> and I never forget. He said, well, what do you expect to come out of that? I don't know, but I don't think I'm probably going to be a professional football player. I might try this writing thing and see if that uh, that works out for wow, me. Wow, I guess you knew early. That's, that's oh, so yeah, impressive. I've been, How I've old been, were you? Been, I would have been 16 or 17 back then. Okay. And um, so I stopped playing after my, my junior year. So I think it was my junior year. must have been. Anyway, yeah, it was before, I was, it was before my senior year, so I wouldn't have been 18 yet. So I'd been 16 or 17. Yeah, I was already pretty serious about writing at that point and was kind of already understanding that's what my my career was likely to be. And football just wasn't going to be it. Although in retrospect, if I had things to do over, I probably could have played like Ivy League football. If I'd done things a little differently, I probably would have you know gone to Yale and played football and uh, gone through college for free. But I didn't understand how that stuff really worked at the time. So um, I didn't. And I went to UT instead where I was big as I was, not nearly big enough to play football. So how worried are you about journalism as someone who predicted your path fairly early? Yeah. We keep seeing this news outlet or that news outlet get rid of more people. I don't celebrate this because they're people with jobs and livelihoods and so forth. At the same time, if you believe in the market, journalists have got themselves hated. And I think quite a lot of them for good reason. Sure. Are you worried about this or do you not care? I think that really high quality journalism has always been a niche market. You know, newspapers were more successful when I was young. Growing up in Lubbock, we had two newspapers. We had the you know morning paper and the evening paper. My semi-literate household got both of them because that's just what you did. Now, granted, then as now, people who got daily newspapers in towns like that were getting them for things like sports scores and obituaries and wedding announcements and that kind of stuff. They weren't, you know, reading the latest about the backgrounder on who the Houthis are and and why they're doing what they're doing and that stuff. Although that stuff was in there too. There was a lot less competition for your time 
and attention back then. So newspapers had a had a better better run of it. I think that if you had had not the internet but some other imaginary thing that made an endless supply of junk content free to people at the point of consumption back in the 80s or in the 70s, it would have had the same effect on journalism that we're seeing right now. And at the Dispatch, we we you know we're a subscriber based business model, and so we're deeply committed to the idea that if you create good content and charge people an appropriate price for it, that you can make this work as a business. And so far, it's been working for us. Middling journalism too. I mean, there are people who kind of want to know what's going on and what's happening, particularly in their town, or in you know things that they're immediately connected to. And then there's a whole lot of people out there who just need to be entertained and distracted. There's a whole lot of stuff out there for them as well. I mean, in many ways, we are living in that you know golden age of journalism. I can remember even in the 90s when I was living in Delhi, just what a treat it was that once a week I could get the London newspapers. I thought that was just the coolest thing in the world because at the time you still couldn't even get those you know online. It was very difficult to, and most of the stuff that was in the papers wasn't on the uh, on the websites. And if you were growing up in the 80s in a in a in a smallish town or a more distant city as I was. I could read National Review, but it would be kind of old typically by the time it got to my public library, which is where I would get it, and lots of other things that you would take for granted if you lived in New York, Chicago, Boston, someplace like that, you just weren't going to see. You know, we might have National Review, but not, say, the New Criterion or something like that, which I didn't discover until a lot later in life. You know, it's nice to be able to get so many different things so easily. You know, even when I was in college in the kind of early days of the internet or, or directly thereafter, it was still very difficult to get a subscription to a newspaper that wasn't your local newspaper. So in Lubbock, for a while, you could get the Dallas Morning News, but there were times when you could get it and times when you couldn't, depending on how much you know Dallas was interested in trying to break into that market. But as for getting you know something like the New York Times, maybe, but it's going to be you know a week old by the time it gets to you or something like that. So um, it's nice to be able to do that stuff if you're willing to pay for content. It's a great time. You know, I subscribe to the Times, I subscribe to the Washington Post, I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, subscribe to the Economist, I subscribe to National Review, subscribe to a lot of publications, and the stuff that is the stuff that you pay for is terrific for the most part. National Review, I think, is a good example of this that just simply because of the nature of digital journalism can do more than it did in, say, 1959, 1961. Starting something like the dispatch in a pre-digital journalism world would have been very, very difficult. And I, you know, I say this as someone who idiotically helped start a daily newspaper once upon a time and managed to lose some investors a tremendous amount of money. No, I'm not, I'm not that worried about it. Uh, actually, I, I got into that in my newsletter this morning, too. This is going to sound like I'm doing advertisements for my newsletter today, but I wrote about the LA Times layoffs and the uh, Messenger and some of that stuff. I mean, there's just a lot, of, there's a lot of bad management in the old newspaper world, and some of that is still shaking out. Again, I don't wish anyone financial harm. And as someone who you know once went through a very difficult period of unemployment myself, I know how hard that can be on people. It was one of the worst periods of my life. But the LA Times is a terrible newspaper. Terrible, terrible newspaper. It is entirely unworthy of the second largest city in the most consequential country in the world and a very interesting city at that. It would be great if someone had a a great daily newspaper in Los Angeles, but the LA Times isn't it. I had a dream of running that once upon a time. You know, there was a rumor that the Cokes were going to buy it. And I don't really know those guys that well, but I was going to make a real hard pitch to, uh, to have them let me run it for them. That did not did not come to pass. And who was the guy who ended up buying the LA Times? 
someone who dearly wishes he hadn't. Um, I know that he's worth $5 billion because Christopher Ingram, who writes, I think, for the Washington Post, was very keen to spend his money for him and said that they lost $40 million a year so he could run it for 100 years without putting himself in a... Well, that's the old joke from Citizen Kane where his his advisor comes in and says, you lost a million dollars last year. And he says, we'll lose a million dollars next year. And at this rate, I'm going to have to shut this place down in... 60 years. Right. But the big difference is that he was talking about his money in that scene. Whereas <laughs> yeah. In this case. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I've, I know a lot of people who want to be in the media business, in the newspaper business. And I've talked, I've talked myself out of some pretty good paychecks from people who wanted to, uh, to do that. Because um, as Jeff Bezos, I think, is finding out, you can be the richest or second richest or third richest guy in the world. And the Washington Post can lose a lot of money. And you're eventually going to say uncle because you got other stuff you want to do with your Well, what, what do you think of the theory that Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post as a way to keep elite opinion off his back? Oh, no, I don't think it's that at all. I think he's um, a weird thing to say about a guy like Bezos. He's kind of a social climber. It's not enough for him to be rich. He wants to be, you know, these Vogue spreads and stuff like that and uh, all the kind of weird stuff he's, he's up to lately. You know, he wants to be a guy who's a player in the world culturally and intellectually and not just a rich guy who figured out a way to make a ton of money selling paper towels on the internet. And again, I've known a lot of people like that who were, um, well, I made a whole lot of money in finance or starting this company and I want to buy my local newspaper so I can be kind of a player in my my community that way. I think Bezos is essentially doing that and um, it's almost never a good idea. Almost never a good idea. It's a, I mean, it can be an insanely profitable business. You know, newspapers for a long time, kind of twenty percent was sort of the standard expected profit margin for uh, wow, that's daily newspapers good. for a long time. Yeah, it's awfully good. You know, particularly in places like you um, know, Lubbock, where I was, is a good example of that. Where um, you know, in the eighties or the early nineties, you had essentially no competition because it's out in the middle of nowhere, but everyone gets the newspaper because they want to see the high school football scores and the wedding announcements and all that stuff. All the car dealers and grocery store coupons and Dillard's and all that, they were, they're all going to advertise. And if you figured out how to keep your costs kind of at a manageable level, which which they were good at, you can make just a ton of money. You can make just tons of money. My little suburban newspaper group outside of Philadelphia, it was more than one newspaper, but we were you know, a group of mostly weeklies. We made a million dollars a month, free and clear. That was our profit. Month in, month out, we made a million dollars a month for our parent company. That's a fine business to be in, you know. If uh, if either one of our publications were making a million dollars a month in in real profit, I think people would be would be perfectly satisfied with that. You know, it's funny you say everyone used to get the newspaper. A great number of movies that are appropriate for children that are set in the 1980s or early 1990s, especially John Hughes style movies, open yeah. with a nice suburban town. A kid on a bike throwing newspapers at the houses and often for comic effect, missing or hitting the sprinkler or lodging. Or the kid better off dead. I want my $2. <laughs> or lodging the, the newspaper in the hedge or, or whatever. And my kids have started to ask what 
the guy in the movie is throwing, and it just made me feel so old. <laughs> Doesn't it? What, what's he yeah, throwing, I Daddy? Just... Well, there's this thing called newspapers. Everyone used to get them, and the kids would wake up early, and to earn extra money, they would ride around on their bike, and they would throw the newspapers at the houses. And often they would just throw one at every house because they assumed everyone subscribed. It's probably easier that way. <laughs> yeah, no, my, uh, my, my little one is, is big into books. And one of the books we have around is uh, Richard Scarry's Cars and Trucks. And uh, it's, you know, it's the alphabet. And each letter of the alphabet goes with something that's on the road. You know, A is for ambulance, T is for taxi cab, that sort of thing. And N is for newspaper truck. He's never going to see one of those, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, they're, they're just obsessed with, how things used to be phones that are connected to the wall fascinate them that's how they describe them phones that are connected to the wall (laughs) the television that i had in my house when i was a child which was really no bigger than my head yeah tiny thing three channels right three channels in the u.s was three channels in the uk you probably only had two right well, we had four because we had BBC One, BBC Two, and then ITV, and then Channel Four. And then when Channel I was four. about 15, Channel Five launched. It was absolutely awful, but it was still exciting. And then we got <laughs> Satellite, Sky. And the odd thing is, there was still nothing on, <laughs> except live sports, yeah. but then you have to consent to other people's schedules, as you know. You know, the changes in technology are funny, and they and they will kind of you know, tend to date you generationally. There's a... Um, it's a funny story about Reagan being out on the ranch doing something, and they get a call. He's got to, you know, hustle back to the house, and everyone jumps in the uh, Jeep. And um, Reagan, I guess, is on a mobile phone and um, asks someone else to drive, but it turns out none of his Secret Service guys could drive a stick. And so he had to drive himself back because none of these uh, youngsters knew how to drive a a manual shift car. That is such an American thing. Apparently, it's changed now in England. But when I learned to drive in the early 2000s, I had to learn to drive a stick before I could get a license in England. Now you can get a license that is only for automatics. But back then, you had to learn stick. So I can drive stick. Are you hearing that dog barking in the background? Uh, it's it's reminding me of our old times. <laughs> that is Pancake, the very happy dachshund. I can go silence her if we need to, or I can just see if she she peters out. How many do you have? Uh, just the one. Hold on just one go second. On. I'm going to see if I can get her quiet. Are we still recording? We are. Okay. Yeah, we just got the uh, one uh, dachshund. You know, the plan a couple of years ago was to get... Um, we thought we were going to have one kid and five dachshunds, and now we've got uh, <laughs> yeah. we've got one dachshund and four kids. So nearly the exact opposite. Almost, yeah. All right. Well, what else is new? Well, there's I'm I'm on family leave actually right now. <laughs> oh, so I've interrupted <laughs> yeah. your family leave. Thank you. Well, that's all right. That means I'm only writing five or six thousand words a week <laughs> instead of my usual, you know, ten to fifteen. No, I tell you what, I am um I'm tired of living out of a, a suitcase. You know, we were um, in the process of, of relocating over the summer, and we had um, bought our new place, and we hadn't sold our place in, in Dallas yet, and we were doing some renovations on the new house and then doing some work on the old house before we put it on the market, and we had some travel we wanted to do, so we just decided we would kind of stay gone for a while while the you know, work was being done. So we were in um, in Europe for a bit. We had a wedding to go to in Italy, and we went to, to Switzerland. 
we spent some time in Colorado at a friend's place. And we kind of, you know, we're expecting and hoping sometime during that that summer that we we're going to get, you know, um, that news that we were going to have another baby. And the day before our furniture movers came to to move us is when we had our first ultrasound appointment and we found out we were having um, identical triplets. And so we were still kind of out of pocket for the rest of the summer because we had some family visits to do and whatnot. But um, when we got back, you know, kind of settled into our new place, it really quickly became clear that um, the local medical facilities there just weren't going to be um, what we needed. We had some some complications early in the pregnancy that um, at the time were really quite worrying, although um, they um, they seemed to have just sorted themselves out. Uh, so we ended up moving back to Dallas and renting the house we used to own from the people who bought it from us. And we had to figure out how to rent some furniture and that kind of stuff. So, um, so we have a we have a house that I think my wife has spent maybe four nights in in her whole life, and uh, and this rented property we're in here, and we're still trying to get stuff kind of squared away. So we've kind of been you know in between two places, and uh, I was going back and forth between between the two places for a while until the babies were born uh, recently, and um, obviously have been kind of you know locked down here helping with things uh, since then. So eventually we will get fully relocated and I'm looking forward to just being in one place and unpacking and having life return to some semblance of normal for a while. Although I figured out that um, what I've done in my life is that um, I've already had retirement. I was retired in my early 40s. Like you remember when I was living in Vegas, you came out and saw me? I was retired then. I didn't know it. I was still doing a fair bit of work, but you know, I was kind of hanging out by the pool and doing fun stuff. And, um, that was retirement. And now I am out of retirement and, uh, I've got four kids and a lot of work to do. Is it chaos having three newborns? Not yet. So, um, triplets pretty much always come premature and they almost always spend some time in NICU. So ours are still in the hospital. So we're, uh, you know, kind of back and forth between here and there. And a great hospital, they're getting really good care, and there's nothing to particularly worry about with any of them. But um, they they had the usual things that premature babies have. They needed some oxygen support and that kind of stuff. But they're all, as far as we can tell, in in, in good shape and uh, and healthy. But yeah, it's going to be a little bit nuts. You know, with the little bitty ones, you've got to feed them pretty frequently. It's one thing to get up every three hours when you've got one. But when you've got three, unless you get them kind of exactly the same schedule, there's going to be some challenges there. But Yeah, I don't think they're going to coordinate with each other. I don't think I'm probably going to get that lucky now. But we're just, you know, we're going to have some help and it'll be fine. Fortunately, we've got a, a house that's pretty well set up for um, for the uh, coming challenges and and all that. But, um, but yeah, it's going to be a little bit little bit nuts. You know, and our oldest one is, is not very old. I mean, he still doesn't really, you know, talk or... Uh, sleep through the night reliably or anything. So, um, yeah, a lot going on. You got in your pre-retirement. That was good foresight. Yeah, or it, was, lack thereof. it was good. Yeah. I'm never going to, never going to do it again. All right, Kevin. Well, this was fun. Thank you for doing it. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, there was, um, 